the grace and peace and love of God be with you all today, bread of life. There is a story that was told at the beginning of the monastic movement, those men and women who moved into the desert. Um, it's a story about two older men who lived together, and one said to the other, um, let us have an argument as men do. And so the second said, well, I don't know how to do that. So the first said, let's put a tile between us, and I'll say, it's mine, and you'll say, it's yours, and then we'll have an argument. So the one took a tile and put it between them and said, it's mine. And the second said, no, it's mine. And the third and the second one came back and said, no, it's yours, take it. And the two went away, unable to have an argument. Um, it gives us a picture of um, the power of greed, the power of possessions in our life. It um, was meant to motivate these monastics to live lives of simplicity, of chastity, of um, poverty, because these kinds of sins that enter our lives could destroy the community. Of course, other things entered into the monastery, as you can imagine, certain kinds of pride and legalism. But they're attempting to deal with the human heart and the way that it's drawn into sinful behavior. The laws today we'll look at is theft, taking things that aren't ours from our neighbor, depriving them, which is already reflected a bit in the law of adultery. And then the Tenth Commandment, that hardest one at the end, you shall not covet. And what's interesting about it is the breadth of things that you can covet. Um, the order in Deuteronomy and Exodus is a little bit different. Um, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. So relations, house, which could be operations and success, uh, ox, donkey, cattle, or anything that is your neighbor's. So it's not simply that my neighbor has a nice new pair of shoes, which is um, something that's easy to covet. It's the whole aspect of my neighbor that um, I'm tempted to desire. We can just think of for a moment of the way these things play out and kind of string along the whole biblical story. Adam and Eve sin because one piece of fruit is off limits to them and they covet and they take and they jeopardize all the peace and flourishing that they had in the garden. Uh, Cain coveted the respect and the honor given to Abel's sacrifice and he killed his brother for it. Um, Jacob, we know, covets the birthright of Esau. J uh, Joseph's brothers covet the love and favoritism that Jacob gives to Joseph. And so they send him off into captivity in Egypt. David covets Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, and takes her and kills the husband to cover his crime. Ahab and Jezebel covet the rich land of Naboth and his vineyard, and they kill him and lie and make a false report so he'll be executed, and they take the land. And the New Testament, Judas, Judas loved the money bag that the disciples carried, and he took from it because he coveted, and then he took his own life in grief. Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament withhold their own goods and deceive the community because they are attached to things. It is the nature of our humanity we see and can sympathize in these stories. Well, the sin itself, we'll unpack it a little bit. Why is it powerful? How does it work? And it helps to begin with, um, in the medieval church, this long period, you know, 400 to 14 or 1500, there's a whole tradition of thinking about morality um, that stays with us in many ways today. I talked about the just war tradition or other kinds of laws that have emerged from that time. And they understood this sin as having several layers. The most basic layer is greed. 
um, stuff, avarice, they called it, meaning that I have an unhealthy desire for things. So it's okay to have possessions and use them. It's even okay to have lots of possessions, they said. But you can't desire those possessions in an unlawful or an unmoral way, in an excessive way. That's greed. When I look at my neighbor's things now and desire those things rather than stuff in general, now that is coveting. I want what you have, those shoes, that purse, that cool new haircut, that job, right? Those things, now I want uh, the, the possessions, um, the attainments in life that you have. And then that extends right into the next, um, maybe more personal sin, envy. I don't just want your stuff. I want something about you. I want to have that life, your kindness, your success, your intelligence. And when we begin to desire that for ourselves, we enter into the sin of envy. Now, they're very complex. Uh, they recognize I can actually envy rightly uh, the purity or the generosity of a friend and find in myself a lacking and to motivate me. So it's this really complex way that we desire things that are unhealthy for us, things that we seek to simply satisfy our own pleasures that are behind this law. And I want to look at two sides of this that spring up in our own lives to understand this kind of a medieval tradition is trying to get at, well, where does this stuff come from? Why do I respond this way? And there's really two major ways that, that coveting, that envy, come into our life and the desire for theft. Um, and the first is this. It's um, unhealthy comparisons. It is absolutely unavoidable in the human life um, not to compare ourselves with one another, with our neighbor. To look at your car and to look at your um, nice new house and to look at your nice new shoes and your clothes and the things that you own and possess and not compare them to what I have. I was uh, captured so well, I've mentioned this maybe a, a while back, Alexis de Tocqueville, the, the French kind of uh, polymath who visited America and was marveling at our doctrine and our idea of equality set about in the Constitution. Um, he recognized it wasn't well applied, but he also said it will be our downfall. This is so prophetic because anybody who has this mind of equality set in their hearts or fairness is always looking just one rung up the ladder at the person who has more. And the whole idea of equality can be the undoing of a society because we think not down the ladder, not down towards generosity, not inward towards gener gratitude, but up to the next step of someone who has a bit more. That um, arbitrariness of life, that's where it really comes from. The, the, the rain, the, the pleasure, the blessings and success of this world don't fall evenly. And we struggle with that. And so we see it around us and we're instinctually um, in, um, prone to desire those things that weren't given to us, that didn't fall evenly in our lives. Even if our lives are full of blessing, see, it doesn't matter. That's Tocqueville's kind of insight because I'm looking up one tongue, you know, one rung on the ladder, and that's just human instinct. And so we recognize that sin comes from these comparisons. And it's not simply the comparison. Comparisons can be healthy. I look at my friend John or my friend Robbie. Everybody loves Robbie, kindest, funniest guy in the world. And I can be very happy for Robbie. I could have love for him. But if his gifts become sorrow within me, I begin to spiral down into this sin and I begin to resent Rabbi. I begin to um, not be grateful for my own dispositions and gifts. 
Sorrow is the turning point of comparison versus charity and happiness. Think of that sin. We go back, I mentioned, of Cain and Abel. And that first report God said to Cain and Abel, he had favor on Abel's offering. And then he looked at Cain and said, Cain, why are you angry and why is your face downcast? Sorrow. Sorrow at what he did not have rather than joy for Abel's blessing. Um, another parallel passage you may think of in Luke and Matthew and, and, um, and Mark tell this story. The rich young man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to be saved? And it's this great classic Ten Commandment passage. Jesus says, you know the commandments. Honor your mother and father. Do not uh, steal. Do not commit adultery. And the young man says to Jesus, all things I have done, these in my life, and none I lack. And Jesus says, one you lack. Sell your possessions and give them to the poor. And the man went away, what? Sad, sorrowful, because he had many possessions. The scripture is getting at that moment. It's not um, simply that he had much. It's that he had sorrow for the thought of losing it. And that is the turning point. We can look out at our possessions and our neighbors and see the inequality, see the blessings in their life and have joy. Be grateful for them. Meet it with charity or with sorrow. The second place that greed and envy and coveting come from is anxiety. You know, if the first is the kind of arbitrariness of life, the second is the um, uncertainty of the future. That we, um, you know, we sit in this life and we're unknowing about tomorrow. Will I have a job? Um, will uh, I get sick? Will um, something calamitous happen? You know, hurricanes and floods. And so possessions become a means to salve, to comfort us in the midst of anxiety. Um, if we didn't see this in um, this pandemic, then we've missed something enormous. People have coveted in the marketplace all kinds of strange things. You know, flour and paper and toilet paper. I mean, those things are reasonable to a certain degree, but all kinds of kind of hobby things. The market just runs out. And it's such a, a, a sign, evidence of the way we use possessions to salve the anxiety, the uncertainty of tomorrow. You know, this really interesting um, passage Jesus says in our reading today, do not be anxious about tomorrow, what you shall wear, what you shall eat, what you shall put on, what you shall do. Jesus is getting at that, that the uncertainty of life is a given. Don't be anxious about it. Don't be upset about the arbitrariness of the world, nor about the uncertainty of tomorrow. It is a part of our human journey in this world to live by faith. Interesting too, in James chapter four, uh, James asks this question, what is it that causes the quarrels among you? Is it not your desires and your passions that wage war within you? You desire and you don't have, so you quarrel and fight and murder. It's so interesting to me that just a few verses later, you know, James comes to this point. Beware those of you who say, tomorrow and the next year, I'll go down to this place and spend three years and do such and such. But you ought to say, if God wills, for you do not know what will happen tomorrow. I mean, James puts together this um, coveting and desire alongside anxiety. Um, we are people who don't live well peaceably with that kind of Jesus life who has nowhere to lay his head. These skills, these things have to be um, labored at. They have to not have greed and to have envy and to have covetousness requires real thought about the movement of my heart to joy or sorrow or anxiety. We have to labor at those things. 
And that's really it. The, the sins of the heart and the way they're drawn away um, are an amounts to our failure to be satisfied with the Lord. You know, in um, the book of, um, of, of uh, Deuteronomy, we get this law that says, um, you shall not desire or delight in your spouse or the house. Now, this is um, these two words that Deuteronomy uses. Exodus doesn't. But the two words there, nakmad and ava, um, desire and delight. Only one other place in the whole Old Testament that those two words occur together. Genesis 3, 6. And the woman, nakmad and ava, the fruit. It was good for food, good for getting wisdom, a pleasant to the eyes, and she took. A possessions, covetousness, is idolatry in its very most basic form. Paul says that twice. Put off all that is evil, you know, calam calamity, uh, impurity, sexual, sexual impurity, and covetousness, which is idolatry. He tells the church in Colossians and Ephesians that. Ultimately, it comes down to possessions as a rejection of the goodness and satisfaction that God is to us in this life. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, our failure to be able to do that and be satisfied with the Lord. Interesting, the only sin that says that's um, opposed to God is that you cannot serve God and mammon. You can serve all kinds of things in this world, my career, my pride, but not mammon. Something about it gets in the way of the satisfaction of our God. So what is the treatment for this sin? What's our um, kind of way, our remedy for getting around our hearts that are anxious and unsettled by arbitrariness? Well, the answer, I think, is gratitude, which results in generosity to be thankful for each day. I want to end with um, going back to the Lord's Prayer, which I have loved for these last two years studying and learning about. Completely overlooked, I think, by us, the genius and beauty of this short little prayer. But notice what a remedy is for this kind of condition that we're in. Our Father. You know, it's not just our God or our Lord, it's Father. The immediate reminder that the one who made us and is with us cares for us. I needn't worry about the arbitrariness of the world. I needn't worry about tomorrow because I have a father who's in heaven, whose will is coming and being done in my midst, not mine. I see Clinton Black, this, um, the scholar at Princeton, said that the Lord's Prayer, he said, is, um, it is a purifier of desire and it is an educator of human wanting. It purifies desire and educates human wanting. Your kingdom come. You see the submission in the prayer. All these things in life that I habitually desire, we surrender. Your kingdom come. Your will be done, not mine. Give us our daily bread. Gratitude. Gratitude when I look at my neighbor, one rung up on the ladder and say, I'm grateful. Thank you for my bread daily. Forgiveness letting my sins go, forgiving others around me. So it's a, the peaceableness, this prayer comes in. And then thy kingdom come, thy will. Not the things in this world that I set my heart on, but I set my heart on the kingdom of God. Because why? Because God knows that's where our desires are most satisfied, that where we can be at most peace, that results in the generosity that's owed to our neighbor in need and oppressed. Um, it is interesting in Paul as we close today in 2 Corinthians 8, he's dealing with the rich communities and poor communities in Corinth. And they do all kinds of things to make themselves cliques and avoid one another. And Paul's trying to bring them together. 
And he says, don't you know Jesus, who though he was rich, he became poor, that you might be made rich in him. Jesus of all people, of all wealth, became poor so that we might become rich. And then Paul tells this church, so you who are rich, supply the need of those who are poor so that they might supply you with what they have. This kind of dying to self as Jesus did so that the community would glue itself back together to look down, to look out into our world, not at the possessions, not at my neighbor above me, but at the needs below me with gratitude, with peace for tomorrow, knowing that our Father will care for us. Amen.